Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the 15 Minutes of Football Transfer News Central podcast. I'm Johnny Bentley, your host, and once again, I'm joined by James. Hi, Johnny. Hi, everyone. I didn't quite realise the... Uh, it was like we had a big distance like there, James. As I, as I slowly gather my throat together, it's not feeling very good. I don't know why it's. I don't know why it's uh, so bad today. But again, it's a wonderful start. That about thirty second difference, and my throat is killing me. Don't know why. We'll, we'll hopefully it eases over the course of the podcast. I know that's not how it usually works, but I'm hopeful that we have a bit of a an unpredictability uh, in this case. And unpredictability is our first topic of the 15 minutes of football podcast. You see what I did there? Uh, I'm here. I'm here. Yeah, free. I need to charge a high freelance fee. That's um, you don't get that anywhere else. Wonderful. But you know, it's been a crazy, crazy start to the season. And unpredictability is, as I say, is the theme. It, it, we, uh, uh, you know, week one and week two, we said, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna calm down. Week three went crazier. Week four went even crazier. Week five, not quite as crazy as week four because we had seven two Aston Villa, six one Tottenham again at Old Trafford, uh, and then the week before it was five two Leicester. So it wasn't quite as crazy as that in in week five, but there were still a few, still a few surprises. The the three three at Tottenham being being a, being a crazy game. Then we're going to week six. And it sort of carries on again, not quite to the extent that we had in week three and four, but you've got Aston Villa win every single game and then, you know, battered at home to by Leeds, uh, who were beaten the week before by Wolves. It, you know, West Ham holding being held holding Manchester City 1-1. We keep expecting, or at least I keep expecting, Pep Guardiola's team to win and win convincingly in a week. But they haven't done it yet. They keep, they keep sort of threatening to do it and then they don't quite do it. So I suppose as a <clears throat> this this is still Johnny, by the way. Just in case anyone's wondering, the voice is going a little bit uh, squeakier than usual. But James, just as a sort of um, reminder as to how we've discussed unpredictability in recent weeks, sort yeah. of can, can you remind us what we had discussed in previous podcasts as to why the season had been so crazy to to start off with? Yeah, well, I think we mentioned, didn't we, that that it might have something to do with. Lack of pre-season for some teams, some teams going further in Europe, so having less time to prepare for the new season, less time to get match fit, less time to build chemistry on the pitch, less time to settle on a formation. Some players, some teams had a lot of new signings. The, the teams that seem to have started the most sluggishly are the ones that <laughs> further in Europe. What was that, James? The most what? Well. Um, the most sluggishly. That's what I said. I think that's that's a good word. Countdown fans are uh, doing doing a. Craze right now. Go on, James. Carry on. Yeah, no, I think that the teams that started the slowest uh, are the ones that uh, the ones that seem to have had later seasons and you know didn't have much of a preseason. And it makes it the teams that started well, the teams that had a proper break, had a proper preseason, mm. um, were able to get match fit and you know get tactically prepared. Everything before the season started, like Everton, the you know Leeds, those teams, but even Liverpool. Had a, had a pretty good pre-season. Uh, we uh, extended it a bit, James. We said sort of the, the people who had a longer season were people in the Champions League and the Europa League. But also, I sort yeah. of suggested before that there were many teams that had a poor end of the yeah. 1920 season that were mentally not quite at it, that seemed to have not down tools, but just weren't giving the 100%. Maybe they were subconsciously giving... Uh, you know, 70, 65%. And it showed, I mean, Everton being a, a prime example of a team that just were on the beaches really early with nothing to play for. And 
and, and I was going to ask you whether they actually had a good uh, restart, but Everton being one um, in particular, and you know, look at and, and Liverpool as well, actually, who who, who also, even though they, because they practically wrapped up the league at the time, uh, Crystal Palace not doing too bad as well uh, after a quite a poor end to that end to the campaign. So again, I think I think it all ties into the theme really of having longer to prepare, having longer time off. Whether because obviously those teams didn't have literal time off, but they had mental time off, and then of course they didn't have the European commitments. So it all it's all attributed to time mentally and physically that wasn't spent earlier, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, it's like you kept reserves of energy that you didn't have. That other teams had to use. The other teams are more physically and mentally drained, and then they have less time to prepare as well. So, so we had. So we've had a bit of a crazy start to the season. You know, it's the most unpredictable season that I've seen. Uh, yeah. I think the title race is wide open. Mm. I don't think any team's going to run away with it this year. It's going to be quite close, and there could be a few. You don't know who the favourites are really at the moment. I mean, Liverpool. Starting to get a bit of consistency, you know, they're edging towards the top. You know, they ground out a win this weekend and they were behind, I think. So, although they've lost, but even then, they've lost Van Dyke, you know, which is a big blow. Uh, yeah. Even has come in and done pretty well at centre back. I Van feel Dijk like it's be a blow to any team. So, yeah. it's going to be interesting to see what happens. I don't think there's any, any, clear favourite right now and you know Man City could get their stuff together and then start and if they play like they can and get consistency again they could they could win it you know it, uh, it's difficult it, to say who's going to win it it is crazy I mean we're, you know that was so we're sort of using the start to elaborate on what we thought initially and all those things lack of pre-season the mental physical uh, lack of a mental physical break affecting teams obviously all the, the pandemic's all caused this, so it is, it's very attributed to the pandemic. The way that, well, is it completely attributed to the pandemic, the way the, the, the current seasons are aligned and how the, uh, they've been sort of patched together. But but the main question, the main idea behind this is, we, we've discussed that at length before, but to, to expand upon that, can this unsustainability continue? And we've sort of seen now that, 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 it, that it's going beyond the initial two or three weeks that we anticipated. And I just want to sort of go through the structure of this season a little bit in that in between uh, Premier League games before the international break there were teams were playing in the Carabao Cup uh, so it was two games a week but I suppose in the Carabao Cup you can you know as many teams do they field wholesale changes from the weekend but then when teams are in the Champions League they often don't have that luxury because it's a competition they're expected to do well in and usually in the Champions League you'd play in a midweek and then you'd have the league game at the weekend and then it'd be a cup game or you might be out of the cup, so you you could have a, a week inside the week after, or you wouldn't play at all. But now it's Champions League, Premier League, Champions League, Premier League, Champions League, Premier League, and there is no gap. It's every single mid between sandwich between two Premier League games over the weeks. There's a Champions League game in each one. You've also got that for you, the Europa League as well. Although with the Europa League, I've got a bit more. They've probably got a bit of an advantage because again the standards lower. So the likes of Tottenham. Uh, and Jose Mourinho can rotate a bit more as if it was maybe a Carabao Cup game. We saw them rotate a lot uh, against Lask in the in the uh, in the Europa League last week, and, and they mm. won three 0 But for your teams in the Champions League, 
some of whom, like Manchester City, had a long, late end to the season in August. Uh, so they didn't have a proper pre-season like we've just discussed. They're still not getting a proper break because they're playing miles more than they were expected to be playing and they're not probably going to have the opportunity to rest a lot of key stars because it's the Champions League then the Premier League. It's going to be a tough next right, yeah. tough period up till the international break for these teams. And on the groups as well. I mean, some some teams have got easier groups than others. So you can mm. go, you've got games where you could rest. You, you can rest like Chelsea. You've got a midweek game this week against a team that I can't even pronounce the name. I, um, I literally can't pronounce it. Barcelona, uh, James. No, I'm only messing. Um, but it's a team that basically should be a, a kind of a basically you could probably play your second string. They'll probably play their second string in that team, and they could still win comfortably. So it depends on the groups. But yeah, you're right in that in that in that respect that you know difficult. I mean, Manchester United have got an awful group. You know, so um, they're going to have to play their their kind of their first choice team in. In every every game, you know. FC Krasnodar, James. FC Krasnodar, that's the one. Yeah, FC yeah. Krasnodar. Yeah, they're not. They're probably more a Europa League level team than a Champions League team. But yeah, Man United have got an awful group, and I think mm. I can't remember all the groups to be honest. But so Liverpool have got a reasonably difficult group. Um, mm. Man City have got a reasonably difficult group. Not mm. not easy. Mm. So yeah. It, yeah, I mean, my, my the, the the way I'm thinking now is that over the season, the teams with the strongest strength in depth will be the ones that that go the longest. Or like, what about so, yeah? So teams like Villa or even Everton, maybe who haven't got the kind of the quality in depth. As the season goes on with a number of games, they might and they need to ro- they need to rotate. They won't be able to. My argument would be, say, I, I, I could sort of have a, a counter theory that someone like Everton, they've got OK depth, I think. I don't think it's amazing depth, but they've got OK options uh, behind the main 11. Everton aren't playing in Europe and mm. and in the Carabao, and neither are Villa, neither are Leeds, neither are, I'm trying to think of another high fly now, I can't quite think of the but there you go. Three, three teams who started really well, who aren't in Europe, who have, Relatively decent squads, maybe not to the level of some of your bigger teams, but relatively decent squads. So they're playing at normal level, I say now, sort of normal level, one game a week. You know, they can rest, recuperate, get ready for those games. While your bigger teams are, fr- are fretting about having to prioritise uh, certain games. Like you say, Chelsea with Krasnodar uh, in the Champions League, but it's still a Champions League game. It's not like you can make 11 changes and, and like in maybe the Carabao Cup against I don't know, someone like Fleetwood or, or Yeovil Town. Yeah, yeah. It's still a Champions League game, so he might make some changes, but again, it, 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 you, you've got to, it, it's a lot, it's more than wholesale changes and, oh, if we go out, we go out. It's it's the Champions League. So it is, I think I think there is a, a genuine, there's a genuine danger of burnout because likes of Man City who are slowly trying to build fitness and now being overworked again after not having a pre-season. Same with Man United. You know, and to an extent, the same with Chelsea because Chelsea did did have European commitments and played in the FA Cup in um, FA Cup final. Sorry, uh, at the end of after the season had finished. So there is, I, I in my head, I do think there's a possibility that this, as you've said, craziest season you can remember. Well, it's easily the most open, bizarre Premier League season of the 21st century, if not ever, or at least it's looking like that. I see no reason why. Well, I mean, it could it could level itself out and make it and, and seem like a, 
you know, something we're more accustomed to by the end. But I think there's a good there's a good chance that it might not do. Because Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean I don't think it's gonna be and I don't think like I said, it's not gonna be a season where one team runs away with it or a couple of teams run away with it. No. But I do think that I do think that the, the, the teams with the strong squads will assert themselves and will get back to some semblance of form. You know, I don't think they're gonna and that's why they've got strong squads, because they can rot- because they they'll have to rotate. They will have to rotate. And because they've got the depth to do that, they probably can. You know, I mean, do you, just as a just as a sort of additional argument, do you think these big clubs are missing the supporters a lot? Because we see, like, maybe, uh, and I suppose all clubs, all clubs in a way, because there's sometimes games. Clubs. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think that might be the reason why we've seen so so many abnormal results, as well as the things we've just said? Do you think the supporters play a bigger th- impact than I, we do? I mean, I think they do. They do for for the home team. They do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everyone talks about the the Anfield nights. You know, the the Anfield crowd, whatever. And they, they they do have a legitimate impact on results. We've seen it. We've seen it happen in the Champions League, especially, but in the Premier League too. That they can carry the team, lift the team, intimidate the opposition. So, yes, it it can have an impact. I think, yeah, absolutely, mm. it can. Yeah, and especially yeah for teams like Liverpool, they would miss that. You know, they would definitely miss that. And teams with big stadiums, big teams would, would miss that, yeah. Do you think Do you think the lack of the supporters maybe affects the amount of goals going in? Or maybe, uh, do, you think it, do you think it's sometimes a benefit because defenders are less maybe nervous or, 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 or worried about making an error? I mean, I mean, that's sort of, you can easily counter that. There's been more goals this season than there's ever been. Uh, is there almost a casualness maybe now when without the supporters there, you, you lose the the idea of the scale of the game. Do you think it feels more like a training session? Some people have argued, I mean, that some games have felt like a training session because the get the defending's been so open or there's been a lack of tempo in certain matches. Well, it's interesting. I look at the source I mentioned yesterday about the atmosphere at Old Trafford. If there had been a full stadium and fans there urging the team on, maybe they would have been made a bit more effort to attack. Maybe the opposition would have been a bit more intimidated, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. So you can argue this. I, I think it's having some impact, although it's kind of an intangible mm. thing. But, it, but, it, but you know, a home crowd cheering you on can give you confidence and boldness to go to go forward and, and try and win the game. I, f- I feel I, like that there's yeah. so many factors cumu- accumulating together to create this unpredictable season week in week out thus far anyway I think there's so much going on different to what we used to and they're all adding together in their own little way to create a season which you know for people trying to predict results and and, and back certain teams it's virtually impossible at the moment because there's so, it's so much is different in small ways yeah. so much is different and just to finish this section James before we go on to Chelsea discussion as quickly as possible do you think this season will go on to be the most unpredictable Premier League season of the 21st century or the most unpredictable of all time since the Premier yeah, League started. Absolutely, it will. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Fantastic. You know, that's that's what we want to hear. I suppose, um, well, I suppose from a neutral point of view, I do hope uh, do hope my team can avoid the, uh, the, the drop <laughs> in this unpredictable of seasons. Not, you know, quite a few people were saying that Burnley would survive and now everything's happening that we didn't expect to happen. But hopefully that is one of the things that does go onto the grain. A bit of Sean Dyche defensive geniusness. 
Jesus, that's not a word to keep to keep Burnley up in the top flight. But we'll move on to the next section now, which is all about all about Chelsea and Frank Lampard. Really, we talked about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer in depth last week and the possibility of him him extending his life cycle to an extent at the club. And you know, he's still unbeaten. You know, in, in in this very difficult week, because to beat PSG, remarkable result, they drew with Chelsea. But now on the other side, we've got Frank Lampard, who I suppose we compared a little bit last week has been in a similar position to Solskjaer. Arguably, many would say that he's only in the job because of his past affiliation with the club, much like Solskjaer's only in the job because of his past affiliation with the club, because both managerial CVs don't necessarily support the uh, the gravitas of, of the job that is Chelsea. Uh, so it has to be something else, and that's probably what it is. How would you assess Project Frank Lampard so far, James, after... A very a result that really polarised opinions in the Chelsea family. Yeah, it's a work in progress for me. Uh, Lampard's done a lot of good things. Uh, he's, you know, he's. I think he overachieved last year. He had a lot of players he didn't really want, on players that weren't suited to how he wanted to play, and yet managed to get them into the and had a transfer ban, and was able to get Champions League in the top four, which nobody predicted. Well, I predicted it, but not many people predicted it <laughs> right. um, yeah. at the start of the season. Um, most people predicted kind of top six, maybe. And I think that was an overachievement, you know, especially when you think that he got the same points as a Man United team that spent like 200 million last season. So that was an overachievement. And getting to the cup final, obviously, as well, you know. And he beat he beat a lot of big, big teams and big managers last season uh, as well. So that's a positive. He's done well at developing, integrating academy players. Um, he's attracted a lot of top players to the club this summer. They all, most of Chelsea's signs this summer said they came because of Frank Lampard. And quite a hefty pay package, I think, as well, James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he's done some good things. I think there's still, I think you can see that he's still an inexperienced manager. He's only in his third season as a manager and third season coaching period. He's never. He wasn't an assistant anywhere. So, yeah. And it, at the moment, it's difficult to. And I think the thing that fans are concerned about is that there's no clearly defined kind of formation system philosophy. That yeah, I was. You, you're almost <laughs> anticipating my question. Sorry, James. I was just going to say you're almost anticipating my questions because my next question was going to be something that I saw with Mikel Arteta. As I say, was. If you watch Arsenal, they're not they're not always a work in pro- you know, they're sorry, they are a work in progress as well. The, they aren't the finished article in the in in the uh in any uh slight uh, look of the imagination. They aren't there's a lot of work to be done yeah. there. But what you do see with them, even though some fans can be frustrated at the speed of the tempo sometimes, you do see a defined set kind of style. You see little patterns of play, don't you? In and, and passing yeah. without Without too much thought, the players know where they're supposed to be, and they're making little uh, intricate passes and building out from the back. And I, you know, I've seen them on a few occasions this season. And while it's not quite hundred percent there, it's the, the, it's obviously working on it in the training ground. It's obviously style, these patterns of play, this build up, this uh, fluid three four three slash four three three formation. It's a bit different today against Le- tonight against Leicester. For a disclaimer, this has been recorded on a Sunday. But you see, as I say, you see those patterns. And you were just sort of discussing there that it's not as obvious at Chelsea. And to an extent, Man United, I suppose, in, in some ways. With yeah, Solskjaer. that's right. Yeah, that's um, right. And why do you uh, think that is? I think there's a combination of things. I think 
Percy's had a lot of players injured. Uh, like, I mean, this season, you know, Zayek's not really has was got injured in pre-season and hasn't isn't fit yet. Like match fit, you know, you had other players that, you know, Thiago Silva w- w- took a while to get into the team because he had to quarantine. You know, they didn't get the goalkeeper till late, which obviously had an impact on the defending. Uh, there's a few little things. I don't think he's got the midfield that he wants either. The midfield at Chelsea is not is not balanced at the moment. They don't have a proper defensive midfield player, which is which they really wanted to get in the summer and they couldn't get. Uh, they wanted to get Declan Rice to play defensive midfield, uh, and I think if they got that, you would actually see more of what Frank Lampard wants to do because having a balanced midfield is really really important. And he would and he would have had you could have had for example you could have had. A 4-3-3 with Declan Rice playing defensive midfield, Kante playing as a box-to-box eight, which is what he's best at, and then um, Kai Havertz playing as an attacking eight. You know, and so you would have that would have been, which I think is how he wants to play ultimately. I think that's ultimately what he wants to do, but he can't do that right now because he doesn't have a player really that's suited to playing a number six. So he's having to adapt, and that's why you're seeing the 4-2-3-1, and the four, and then yesterday, you, know, you saw the three-four-three, uh, which you used both of those last year. I think also you've there's been big defensive problems as well. He wants to play an attacking style of play. Um, he's bought some great attacking players, got some great attacking talent, but it was costing goals at the start of the season because there was no defensive structure, and and of course there was the Kepa problem, which was Kepa alone was responsible for a, a f- quite a few goals. They fixed that now. It looks like you know. I mean, I think against Manchester United yesterday, they would have lost that game if Kepper had been in goal because he would have conceded at least two of those goals that that Mendy saved. So it's a work in progress. It looks like what he's doing now is trying to build a defensive structure first because he's got the players that he wants in that position at the moment. I mean, he obviously, still wants to buy a world class centre back, but he's got Thiago Silva who is doing really well and looks to be organising and leading that defence and having a positive impact. So, yeah, he looks like he's got a kind of a solid back four, back five. Um, you know, Chilwell has done well. Reese James is starting to play more regularly. Zuma's playing pretty much every game. So you've got more of a steady back five. And once that's more established and they're more confident in that, I think they'll then be able to kind of focus on releasing the attacking talents. Mm. And it's taking them time to adapt anyway, the, attacking players because it take, generally takes attacking players longer to adapt than defenders anyway mm. so mm. yeah I think you'll start to see it more over the season Yeah, but you won't see it fully until he's got the defensive midfield player that he wants mm. because that's key to the system I think he wants to play but yeah so it's been difficult you know and he's got a lot of players there that, that he wants to get rid of but can't which is also a problem he doesn't really want Jorginho but he's got to use him because he's there. So, yeah, there's a lot of issues that he's kind of dealing with. Okay, uh, two questions then, which I thought I'd, I'd just been listening. So the first one is, um, again, using the Arteta comparison, which uh, might not be looking too good with Arsenal as, as we're recording this, losing 1-0 to Leicester at home. But I'm thinking <laughs> more over, I'm thinking more over his tenure at Arsenal. We're talking about the patterns of play that they've had. And I've said that's also a work in progress. But, Arteta's managed to create patterns of play with a squad that's no with an eleven really and a squad that's 
yeah. nowhere near really where he's expected to be at. And people, I know some Chelsea fans have said you should have a pattern of play anyway, uh, irrespective of the eleven that you, you that you might want that you might desire at the end of it. Because if you don't have that pattern of play in the club, when you do get that eleven, it's going to be a hell of a lot harder to to make that pattern of play, isn't it? Surely. And then the second question would be you were saying that he hasn't had the defensive players that he wanted maybe to to really let loose the attacking talents but now with Thiago Silva playing having played a few games with Mendy in goal as Piliqueta as well uh back from injury um you know and, and, and Chilwell back and James integrated into the team Zuma's doing fairly well to it generally then you know you, you put all that together Kante and Jorginho in front then surely that is enough from a defensive foundation yeah, to, think, to let think, them go. Yeah. I think they just wanted, I think you could see yesterday uh, that they lost, that they had. They haven't been confident defensively as a team. Mm. But I think Lampard's wanted, to, I think the focus of the last two games was let's get a defensive structure, let's get some clean sheets and build some confidence as a defence. And so then the attackers can have confidence in the defence as well. And so then you can, once, once everyone is more confident in that defence, they have some stability, then, then you can really work on the attack and kind of almost release the attackers to do what they want to do. I think he wants to have quite a fluid attack because he's got an attacking four. I think it's his attacking four of like Christian Pulisic, Timo Werner, Zayek and Havertz. Once they will fully fit, that will be a kind of, I'm thinking that will be kind of a diamond at the front. With Werner at one at one tip and Havertz is the number ten, and then the other two kind of wide, and that'll be in front of the rest of the team. And yeah, that I think once you get all those fully fit and confident and confident in the in the players behind them, you know, building chemistry on the pitch, uh, which can take time to do, especially when you've not had a pre-season to do it, then I think that will start to that'll start to click. You know, the yeah. other thing in the midfield and the attack that's really really important because you need players in midfield who can link up the defense and the attack and that is that's absolutely crucial and, and patterns of play james what's what's the thinking behind maybe the lack of the patterns the, the, the because i know you said before with this you i know you've i'm asking the question again because as you because your answer was he hasn't got the, all the players that he wants, but you know neither does Mikel Arteta and neither do other managers. When Pep Guardiola first went to Man City, he didn't have all the players that he wanted, yeah. but he started yeah. to make, build yeah. the style. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I can't, I can't really answer that. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, sorry, that's what, I'm sorry. What, I think that's the concern that some fans have: is that mm. it's not clear to see mm. in the patterns of play what he wants to do. I mean, some uh, people, James, in, in, your, in you know, this isn't an anti-Lampard. I'm only doing it to balance out the no, argument. Actually, I, and also, I, you know, some people have said the same thing about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and some people have suggested that when United have played some lovely, intricate passing football, it seems as though it's more, you know, that Ole Solskjaer saying to the players, just be free and, and, and don't be afraid to do your passing because sometimes it looks brilliant. And then other times, you know, it, it looks like they think too much as though it's not necessarily been worked on. And I know with Chelsea, there's been moments where they have played, you know, over Lampard's time, they scored some really nice goals. But I think it's maybe the lack of consistency in the approach, isn't it, to those, to yeah. those goals? And I think, I mean, I, I, the, the Chelsea coaching staff is interesting because they've all, they've pretty much all come from, their, their background is in the Chelsea Academy. 
And the Chelsea Academy played passing, um, one-touch passing, attacking football, alternating between 4-3-3, sometimes 3-4-3. But, and they were generally dom- dominant as well, kept possession, attacked a lot, scored a lot of goals. And they're all fans of Pep Guardiola, from what I've heard as well, um, want to play, not exactly the same, but they want to play a kind of passing, attacking style of football. The problem is that they don't, I mean, they've never, when you come from that background and you've, you know, cause Chelsea were the dominant team in youth football and then you step up to, you know, to the men's game, to the Premier League, it's, it's different. It's much more competitive. So you've got to find other ways around it. Well, I think uh, there's a reason why Pep Guardiola is so highly sought after. It's not just this case of watching yeah. a Guardiola team and saying, oh, we play like this. There's a lot more intricacies. There is, there is a lot more. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, it's, hmm, yeah, I, it, yeah, and this is where people criticise Lampard. I think I, he, he did an interview um, um, last week where he asked about his philosophy and he said, like, like I can't, it's difficult. I can't just, I'm not going to just force my philosophy on everybody straight away. I want to wait till kind of players have adapted to the Premier League. Players have built some chemistry on the pitch. You know, I think he's he was like talking about, you know, hopefully within the next six months he'll be able to start implementing his philosophy more because is it, perha- is, it perhaps, more because is it perhaps ignoring the question slightly? Is it perhaps ignoring the question slightly though, as though to say, you know, maybe he's not fully aware of what he wants how to implement things himself. I think he knows what he wants, it's just he's not we're not seeing it. I don't think. And to be fair, James, what I would say is that in a season of absolutely crazy results for certain teams, Frank Lampard could take a bit of solace in the fact that Chelsea haven't had a really heavy, shocking defeat. In fact, the closest came at West Brom, and then people at the end were talking about the brilliant comeback that they made at three 0 down. So yeah, yeah, and and I, 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 you know, I'm. I, I do think managers, I always think managers need time and they need money and Lampard certainly had money. So it makes sense to maybe give him, give him, give him the time to, uh, for everyone yeah. to adjust. I think the club want to give him that time as well. They've, I mean, they've really backed him in the summer. Mm. Uh, the, some of the players that they, that they want that, that they signed were ones that he really pushed for, especially mm. Chilwell. The club, mm. what I heard, the club didn't really want to spend 50 million on a left back, but Lampard really pushed for Chilwell. Mm. Uh, hard and they, they they bought they got him they got him for him and it looks like it's paid off as well. You know he's, he's started well and it is uh, really good. To see. Looks looks like he's. And on a positive like, note to end that, I mean, I, I you know let, tr- trust in Lampard. Let let's have some positivity. I think in, in football, I always back it, believe in backing the manager, and I acknowledge that this is probably seventeen minutes of football. But sometimes, you know, I thought the discussion hadn't reached a natural end, so I thought the um, thought to go on slightly probably was appropriate. A, a big shout out to Sam who does these. Uh, as I, as I fa- find out when I sometimes put these some promos together, he does these very nifty whistles. And if he does it correctly, it'll sound really good. Now I've uh, acknowledged the whistle. Believe, anyone who's listening, I don't hear these whistles. I don't have control over this. This is all down to Sam and his wonderful editing technique. Anyway, cue the whistle. The next topic actually was something that I found on on, on Twitter, uh, a little debate um, that had um, arisen as to what the best London-based 11 was. I think Mark, oh. Mark White, not the one from Towie, but someone on... Um, my timeline, who was, uh, I think he was actually lined up to do this podcast at one point, so I don't know what happened to him. Sorry, Mark. 
he was he 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 picked an eleven of the best players. He was doing a challenge, a Twitch challenge, set by some random account. The best eleven players in a team. Um, to terribly explain this. All playing there. All all playing in London right now. So the best London team essentially. Thank you, James. I'm doing a, I'm doing a disastrous attempt at explaining what the challenge is that I told you to do. Um, yes. Yeah, so I mean, me and James haven't actually I've I haven't actually consulted what his team is or how he's set up mm-hmm. uh, or anything like that. So I suppose we'll give about equal weighting of about seven minutes each to um, to each team. So I'll, I suppose we'll start with you. And first of all, what formation have you gone with? You know, this is well, mine's kind of fluid between between it goes between. It could be four three three or four two three one. Okay. Uh, sorry, four no four two one three. Sorry, four two one uh, three or four two three one. Whatever either either of those. You know, yeah. Okay. So four two three one. Yeah, it could be four three three. Yeah. So yeah, that's my. So go, so go on. I think you see. I I found it quite difficult um, with mine. I suppose we might as well. I said we'll go with you first. We. We could, well, no, I'll tell you what, we'll go, yeah, we'll go with you first. I found it quite difficult picking a goalkeeper because I think... Yes, so did I. In Man, yeah. You know, in, in Manchester, you've got the two best in the league, Edison and Alisson. And then, I, you know, my third and fourth... Sorry, Manchester and Liverpool, Edison and Alisson. Then you've got De Gea is probably still up there with, you know, I'm still... Yeah, he's still him, up there, yeah. You know, uh, so, go on, who did you go for in goal? Just um, uh, Yeah, it was a tough one. Uh, I went for Lloris in the end, is uh, mm. not just because he's a top keeper who's done it consistently, but also his leadership as well. He's a captain. I think he's club captain of Spurs. I think we've been captain of Spurs, mm. and yeah. Uh, so I yeah, and it's difficult. I mean, I couldn't go for Mendy because Mendy's only just started mm. at Chelsea, so it would be unfair to to plonk him in after like four games. And yeah, the Arsenal was the Arsenal. Lena Arsenal was the one, other one that I, mm. I, I looked at, thought about. Uh, I think Leno gets a harsh reputation at the moment because he was terrible actually in the Europa League against. I think it was Rapid Vienna. Yeah, it was awful. But that, but that's you know, I I remember before Eddie Martinez came in and wild everyone. He was one of Arsenal's best players in that season. He was really, really good. I mean, oh, he was. Yeah, he's a good keeper. excellent and. I'm with you. I was toying between him and Lloris. And I think I'm thinking a bit of short-termism now because if it was if Leno was playing as he was last season, I'd probably pick Leno because Lloris isn't... I also went with Lloris. Lloris isn't um, as good as he was two, three, four years ago. In fact, he makes mistakes more often than he did. Uh, he's, he's sometimes slow down to shots. He's kicking... Leno's kicking's better than Lloris's. I think I, the reason I'd pick Lloris, though, just about, and it is just about, is... You know, I think he's a really good leader at the back for Tottenham, isn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons I picked him. And yeah. he's a World Cup winner. And he, and even though he does make probably more mistakes than he should over the course of a season, at least he, he has been doing over the past few years, he's still a very good shot stopper. And again, I think that's what it is, very good shot stopper and a good leader. Because he's not amazing with his feet, is he? I think Leno's better with the ball at his feet. But on balance, yeah, I think I think that's I think we're both picking Larry's for that reason as well. Okay then, so back into your back four. Who are we going with? Right, okay, so back four. This was tough as well. Mm. This was tough as well. I've got a Bellerino right back. Really? Um, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wow. 
Okay. Um, like, yeah, because just because he's considered, like, yeah. I'm, a, I'm year, astonished. I'm astonished. Last year he wasn't that good, but before that he was. But yeah, I was basing it not just on like current form or last season, but just like. So you'll like, say you'll say you pick Bellerin now. If you had a choice of all the players available, and you'd be happy with him, on current form, I wouldn't pick him. No, mm. but no. from but from what you know, that all what you I, expect of them. I would, I would, I would, I would, I was also trying to avoid being Chelsea biased. Yeah, well. okay, okay. Um, because I could easily have picked Reese James or Aston yeah, Perkins. yeah. Um, I would love to. I would love. I pick. I think either of them probably. On yeah. Current form. But you uh, like Bellerin. Let's go with that. Let's go with, let's go with that. Yeah, let's go with... Um, <laughs> who you got in for, then? Who's, who's, who would I, who would I put in? Probably Reese James. Yeah, okay. Fair yeah. Reese um, James. Both on potential, you know, yeah. really. And that he's an attacking fullback, gets crosses in. Yeah, scrub Bellerin. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, you know, Arsenal just, fans. Chelsea bias, it's fine. Sorry, um, Arsenal fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, I was really going on historical form there rather than current form. But um, yeah, okay. Reese James, uh, right back. It's his crossing. His defending's definitely improved. You know, he's very strong, physical. You know, he's yeah. improving all the time. Mm. Um, he's in the England squad now as well. Um, so yeah, he's definitely kind of making that step up. So okay, yeah. Reese James at right back. Yeah, I've got Reese James at right wing back. I'm going for a three-four-three or a five-two-three. I think three-four-three three sounds better. So Reese James at right wing back for me. Because I've gone with Azpilicueta right centre back, which ah, is, right. Okay. is what Chelsea yeah. did. Um, I love that. But you can't play him in a back four, can you, at centre back, Azpilicueta? So you can't do that. Or you can. Maybe can't you play, can. No, I wouldn't play. He can play. I think he can play as a centre back in a back four. I, yeah. would, I, would, I would trust him to put a seven out of ten wherever, wherever you played him, pretty much. Uh, he's like Mr. Dependable. So who is your back? <laughs> Who's the rest of your back four then, James? Okay. <laughs> This is going to sound really bad because it doesn't matter. <laughs> because I've got right, okay, I've got I put I put Chilwell in at left back because I just because right, okay. I've been so impressed by him um, this season. Uh, yeah, it was a tough call though that because because Tierney close to getting in as well, uh, and you know obviously Latin, you know the um, Burr's new left back as well is starting really yeah. well. So it was that was a tough call, you know. But I went with Chilwell because I've just been so impressed with him, and I'm, I also. The centre back, I put Thiago Silva in. Again, he's just—he's a world-class centre back. He's been superb at uh, Chelsea. He's made a huge difference to Chelsea's defence. Who's his partner though? In your um, yeah, I, that was this was a tough one. Like I couldn't really decide. It was—it was really difficult. Um, Rudiger. No, not really. It's not a Chelsea player. Yeah, there were kind of lots of different permutations here. There was like I thought of, I thought of you know, Alderweireld. I thought of Dyer. And then I, just, I settled on Gabriel in the end. I, yeah, yeah. We've got really I, close with our selections here, actually. In fact, I've gone James Aspilicueta, Thiago Silva, Gabriel, but at left wing back, and I know this is kind of against how he plays at Arsenal, but certainly I think should be playing more in that advanced position. I've gone Tierney, because uh, I think he's a great, I think he's a really, really good. No, I like Tierney very highly. Really good. I mean, he plays at left centre back, amazing, which, which illustrates his defensive nows. But he's so attacking as well that I mean he could easily play at left wing back and uh, absolutely yeah phenomenal player really good right so yeah. oh, we did well there yeah Gabriel as well I mean Thiago Silva same reason for you Gabriel I think I'd be really impressed with him how he started at Arsenal anyway 
not not the best result today. Uh, tonight, sorry, against Leicester. Again, this is when it was recorded. But yeah, no, I've largely been really impressed with him. Confident, big, strong, commanding. Uh, yeah. You know, just what Arsenal wanted and really good on the ball. So yeah, that's my back five, back four. So into your midfield then. I'll start this one off. So I've got, okay. mid- so I've got, so it's Reese James, Tierney on the other side. And then I've gone with a midfield two, and this was quite hard as well. I've gone with Kante and Thomas Partey. And I think, I'm thinking back to the Antonio Conte Chelsea here in the 3-4-3 three, three that, that, that they played. And Kante covers a lot of ground and does yeah. all the industrious work. Yeah. And so does Thomas Partey, to be fair. So that would be an incredible, I think, uh, hardly hard-working middle. That would, pitch. yeah. Oh, yeah. But Partey's got more uh, yeah. to his game in terms of his, his, his distribution, Kante. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and I, yeah, I'm a big fan of Partey, and obviously Angelo Kante. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and Kante's in my midfield as well. Um, like, so you can either say I've got a pivot or just a lone DM. So the lone DM or the pivot next to Kante would be Declan Rice. Really? Oh, that's interesting. I completely forgot about Rice, but yeah, that's fine. I'm um, happy with Partey. Because he's, for me, like he's he's improving all the time. His distribution, passing is improving. Um, his defending is superb. His positional play is excellent. He's very strong character as well. Um, very, also quite tall, physical. He can kind of sit one, and that allows Kante to kind of roam a bit uh, in a four-three-three. And yeah, I've got a midfield three. You've got two, haven't you? So. Uh, and then I was, then I, then I, then it was, then I kind of, for the number 10 kind of slash number eight, tacking eight. Um, I know where this is going already, I think. I was, I was really, it was, I was torn actually, because I was like, well, Gareth Bale is a world-class player, right? So mm. he can play, he can play number 10, but. Mason but, Mount, is but, it, James? <laughs> but the best, but the best number 10, <laughs> but I couldn't, I couldn't look past Kai Havertz, really, honestly, like in terms of. Ability, potential, and ability to play the number ten role mm. or the number eight role, attacking eight. Mm. Um, I couldn't really look past him, you know, especially because. And the thing that swayed it over Bale was age, um, also Bale's injury record as well. You know, and we haven't seen how whether he whether he can really do it still in the Premier League yet. So that was another thing. I'm sure he. I'm sure he will, but I'm not doubting him at all. But yeah, so the. Yeah, so kind of got Rice, Kante, and Havertz <laughs> as my midfield. Like, and it, like, you can either have Rice and Kante behind Havertz, or you can have Rice and then Kante and Havertz as number eight. Um, yeah, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Okay, so front three then for me. So this is like you've got your right forward, your left forward. And I think the way when it's a 3-4-3, three, three, you know, these are really inside forwards, aren't they? So the primary, primary job is to is probably to score goals. Or at least uh, be quite difficult in inside the box in in, in inside position. So I've gone with uh, Son on the right because he's very two. Son, Son's very two footed. He's an incredible workaholic, and you know I think I think anywhere he, he just come, he's, he's everywhere on the foot on the pitch. Um, yeah. And I, and I think as a right forward. I think you'd rather sometimes you might he's usually a left forward more or a left wing in the top two, but I'd be happy with him at right forward, always in and around the box in this team, yeah. pressing hard. Uh yeah, I'd be happy with him there. Because at left forward I'd have to put a Bamiang, uh, because I think he is a bit more um one footed than Son. 
uh, and he's also too good to not have in this team. So he'd be at left forward in the similar role to what he has at Arsenal. Not scoring as many goals as he'd probably like so far this season, but again, phenomenal player, both of them. And then in the middle, Harry Kane. Obviously, Timo Werner's very good and you know other other strikers, uh, Lacazette, uh, you know, maybe lesser so. But Harry Kane probably is, for me, in top three strikers in the world. Um, yeah. Overall game is brilliant. Might be top two, depending on flip-flopping whether Ronaldo, if he's a striker, who would you rather have him? But there's an argument you'd have Kane over Ronaldo even at this point. So the only striker in the world better than, definitively better than Kane, I think, is Lewandowski. So again, I think, yeah, Kane dovetailed by those two. Whoa, you're you're onto some exciting. Oh, uh, I think this is where we where we agree completely. Um, <laughs> is it the same? Basically the same. Yeah, same okay. three. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, like Son. Yeah, like I mean, Son and Kane. I picked both of them because they've got such a good chemistry at Spurs as well. They link up so well. They create for each other. Uh, and yeah, I mean, Son scores so many goals. He's a he's a worker. He's quick, versatile, uh, team player. You know, mm. obviously, yeah, like Kane, like you say, is one of the best strikers in the world. He's a great mm. target man. Holds the ball well. Brings others into the play. Scores goals. You know, strong character as well. If you want, so yeah, that was that one. The left, the left wing was the hardest one to pick because because you had you had like. You know, you had Christian Pulisic, who's really, really good. Looks like a top potential on the left. Like, you know, he's scoring lots of goals. You've got Timo Werner, who can play kind of on the left and has played on the left and cut inside and scored a lot of goals for Leipzig. Mm. But ultimately, it was I couldn't get I couldn't look past the Bamiyan because uh, no. you know he's a world class player. Yeah, he's um, very good. Scores no, lots of goals, very quick, no. proven uh, in the Premier League. Yeah, so. Yeah, same front three. I'm sure that'll it'll stoke up some debate on social media as well. And just before we do switch on to the next one, this is a one-word answer, no explanation, because we are in borrowed added time to this section. But uh, who would you have of the London club, the, the managers in London? Who would you who would you have managing that team? I did actually think about this. Hmm. It's a toss-up between Arteta and Mourinho. I, I was thinking would, the same. I probably I probably just lean with Arteta because um, he's more of the kind of the modern manager. Um, probably more in tune with modern football than Mourinho, but it's a toss up between those two. Yeah, I'd go with Jose Mourinho just because of what we've seen from Sonic K with that and the defensive set. I think I don't know. I, I was with you. I was torn between the two, but it would be a yeah, either of them really. Either of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just for the social media, we'll do the separate one. So I go Jose, and people can debate. Last section as well, uh, usual one, rounding up of European matches and things. And I was saying, um, I was saying before, uh, James, actually, you know, the the, the Man United Chelsea, the second nil uh, nil of the Premier League season after the wonderful West Brom v Burnley game. You know, <laughs> it, it was was actually uh, the United Chelsea game it was one of the worst games I've seen this season, and worst games I've seen for a long, long time. I was bored out of my mind. But the um, El Clasico game. Uh, beforehand was really, really good. I mean, between two teams, two fallen giants, I'd say, not completely, but uh, compared to where they were three, four years ago, Barcelona, Real Madrid, the um, yeah. some of the the heavyweights of European football now looking significantly less dangerous than they have done in the past. I mean, you look at some of the lineups, they, they're lacking that superstar quality that they maybe had back in uh, five, six years ago. But I'll tell you what, it was a really, really good game. 
3-1 to Real Madrid. It really could have gone either way. There was a key moment at 1-1. Uh, Sergio Ramos gets his shirt tugged. They play on, but VAR rules that it was a penalty. And it was a penalty. Uh, Ramos scored 2-1 Real Madrid. Barcelona didn't really recover from that. Real Madrid really composed at the back uh, for the remainder of that game. And Modric scored um, a late um, comp- uh, game that killed a uh, goal that killed the game with Modric coming off the bench, but yeah, I mean, it was a. Re- I know you didn't see the game live, Jez, but you caught up with it. It was a really exciting game between t- between between two teams that simply, you, you know, on a surface level, it was just a good game of football, and it was really interesting. I was saying to you that some people think that Messi might be a little bit, you know, past his best mm-hmm. or over the hill, and he probably is a little bit. But I mean, if you watch that game. He still had Real Madrid, um, you know, defenders on strings at times. Uh, and even though he didn't score, and even even if, you know, his record in El Clasico's recently hasn't been particularly good, Manchester City should be licking the lips at the prospect of getting him maybe next season on a free transfer because he's still got bags of talent. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I always laugh when I see hear people writing him off because, you know, he's the greatest player, greatest footballer of all time. You don't, he hasn't had any major injuries and he's not, you don't lose that ability. Yeah. Uh, you might have bad runs of form. All players have mm. bad runs of form, even Messi. Mm. Although he has them less often. But, um, yeah. You know, and of course, it's, it's been a tough year for him mentally, like, you know, emotionally. So if he's not played well, maybe that's, it's off the pitch stuff that's had an impact. It's not his ability. I tell you what, as well, uh, I feel like it's mainly more. I mean, Barcelona play some good stuff um, in the El Clasico, but you can tell it's a team that's in decline, and it doesn't help Messi, you know, who's aging, that he can't keep, you know, churning out wonders for a team that's so far past its best. And it is, even though it was playing good football, it's still well beyond what it, well below what it used to be. But one bright spot for Barcelona, I mean, Ansu Fati, the young wonder kid who uh, through the yeah. academy poachers goal. Uh, to put them ahead, uh, sorry, to equalise after uh, after Valverde put them ahead with a brilliant goal, brilliantly taken goal. Fatty though, really, really good, so confident on the ball, almost Messi-esque, the way he moves with the ball and has the confidence to take players on strike towards goal, uh, so much enthusiasm. It's almost like, maybe, I don't want to tempt fate, but maybe the second coming with one legend nearing the end of his time at Camp Nou. We've got someone coming in now who yeah. can maybe not replicate Messi, but certainly give this declining team the boost that they need. Yeah, they need to rebuild Barcelona long term. I don't know who will do, which manager will do that. I have this feeling it will not be Koeman. But um, no. whoever does that rebuild needs to rebuild around him because he's, I think, was he 17, 18? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Immensely talented. Uh, he can be, yeah. When Messi goes, he can become kind of the symbol of the, the second the coming. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if he'll obviously. It's still, I wouldn't compare any player to Messi or no. they're going to be next Messi, but but he can what, be. What, what about Kai Havertz? Sorry, what about Kai Havertz? What the, is he? The, the, <laughs> no, I'm only joking. No. Um, <laughs> he was some kind of player anyway. I wouldn't compare. I, I, um, yeah, I'd compare him more to Muller or um, you know Kaka or someone like that. You know. Yeah. Uh, Tell you who was good though. Uh, some of the some of the golden oldies for Real Madrid. I know they've got some good young players coming through, but Tony Crows, absolutely brilliant, created more chances than any other player on the pitch. Uh, Nad- 
94% pass accuracy, 100% long pass accuracy, uh, you know, really dictated midfielder. Then Ramos, uh, he did get skinned by Messi in one instance and then Courtois made a really good save. But apart from that, uh, he won the penalty, he scored the penalty himself. He kept Messi relatively quiet apart from the time where he got skinned and that happens to everyone, the best best defenders. And I find it quite, uh, you know, striking that Real Madrid lost 3-2 to Shakhtar's B team in the last Champions League uh, set of fixtures uh, and they didn't have Sergio Ramos at the back. Sergio Ramos comes in and suddenly it's a different um, different uh, matter altogether and the defence looks solid again. And it just shows the, the difference that a, a genuine leader, world-class leader that Sergio Ramos is can make to a defence. Because Rafa Varane is a top, top player. Uh, you know, and he, you know, he, he plays well for France. He's, you know, he's been sometimes linked with big money moves away, and yet when Sergio Ramos is at by his side, he doesn't look as good at that's all. Right. That's right. I'll say this a lot. There's the number one defenders, centre backs, and there's number twos. Mm. Number ones are kind of the leaders, the organisers, the the ones who are really vocal, the ones who calm things down. You know, give confidence to the other centre backs. The number twos are the ones that that play that are still top players, but need that that leader alongside them to mm. kind of encourage them, to calm them down, to just, reassure, you know, give them reassurance. Like, you know, there's, uh, I mean, one of the problems that people have said at Chelsea is there's a lot of number two defence centre-backs and not enough mm. number ones. And so, mm. Ogre Silva comes in, he's a number one, you know. So, uh, yeah, and, you know, obviously Ramos is a number one. So, mm. and, and Varane is probably a number two. So, mm. <laughs> that's probably why they're a good pair yeah. and why Varane doesn't play as well when Ramos isn't around. So, well, Ramos is going to be very difficult to replace for mm, them. They're mm. going to struggle to replace him. Eric, 32 now? Yeah, 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 no, he's, he's certainly uh, getting into the twilight years, but still plays with the uh, enthusiasm of a, mu- a player much younger than yeah. his age. Uh, yeah. I mean, talking about number ones and number twos, I think, didn't Eric Dyer go for a number two when he played Chelsea in the, um, in the Carabao Cup? Um, <laughs> I think he did. Yeah. <laughs> 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 what, what, what is Eric? Is Eric Dyer a number number one or a number two? Just just briefly. What, what's your what's your thoughts on Dyer? <laughs> Was he a number three or a number four? <laughs> Don't know. Gary um, Lineker. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gary Lineker was certainly a number two. Uh, up, 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 up the top of the field. But you know, sticking sticking with La Liga, um, sticking with La Liga. Actually, I mean. Atletico Madrid, you know, doing quietly well with their business, um, mm. better, better than Dyer. But um, Marcus Llorente and Luis Suarez on target against Real Betis, 2-0 victory. Uh, mm. Unbeaten in La Liga this season. They got battered by Bayern 4-0, but that could happen. You know, Suarez again scoring, you know, it does it, it, it's such a, such a coup. We'll probably, I don't want to harp on about it because we'll say it every week, but I mean, it really was a clever bit of business. And Do you think there's any... I know Simeone gets a lot of criticism, but do you think Atletico can maybe take advantage of the fallen giants, or is it, or is it something that maybe, again, are, are Atletico? Some people say outgrowing Simeone style ever. Um, um, I don't know. It's an interesting one with Atletico Madrid because Simeone's been there for a long time, mm. and they don't seem to have kind of had this decline that sometimes happens when managers have been at a club for three or four years. Um, they, they're still up at the top competing now certainly in the Liga uh, it doesn't seem to have been a fallout with the players and the manager and all of that thing you know they, they've had some stability but there will come a point where where 
you know, he will move on, I'm sure. Um, mm. When that happens and where, what, where he goes after that, because he's been sought after by lots of clubs for quite a while, but mm. our football is not what a lot of clubs, a lot of big clubs look for now. Because you know, a lot of big clubs are looking for someone who plays kind of aggressive attacking football, pass the, passing the ball out for a bat, playing, keeping possession. You know, if you look at most top clubs, they, they, they you know, Liverpool, Man City, um, Chelsea, Chelsea. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even, you know, I mean, Arsenal, I think as well, ideally, would play, play that way. You know, but Bayern Munich, Borussia Dortmund like, do it. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very I, different I, style. They all, they all kind of want to play in a certain way. It's kind of the way that a lot of teams are playing now. So it would be, I think if he, I think he's more likely to end up in Italy than he is to come it's a, good, it's a good segue, actually, James, because in, in Italy, uh, obviously, Inter had Antonio Conte. They won 2-0 at the weekend. Uh, Lukaku and D'Ambrosio, two goals in the second half against Genoa. Uh, but there was a general feeling of grinding out the victory from Antonio Conte's men. It felt quite laboured. Uh, Lukaku continues to thrive under Conte, being the uh, target man uh, who, you know, they, they, they clearly both love each other. Love each other, sorry, but um, is you know it's it, even though Juventus Juventus are currently um, we'll come back to this at the end, but drawing one one at home to Hellas Verona, uh, which isn't a particularly good result in the dying stage of the dying embers of that game. And Cristiano Ronaldo for Juventus, I think, tested positive again for coronavirus after coming back from his self isolation, so he's out for another two weeks. So that's a big dent um, in the start to their season, and they've been yeah modded. You know they've been they've been plodded what's the word we'll go, they, they've been plodding along with a few bumps in the roads at the start of their season oh, under yeah. Andrea Pirlo so have Conte's Inter AC Milan still doing quite well uh, at the top there but you know can, can Conte really take advantage of Pirlo's novice uh, status as, as Juventus manager or do you look at maybe the business they did in the summer with the exception of Hakimi maybe Murata as well and think well, a lot of these are, you know, old old age pensioners. I can't help but think of. I can't help. I've always I've had this nagging feeling since fellow was appointed. I can't help but think that he is kind of a talking horse or kind of temp stopgap stopgap uh, person for somebody else. See, next summer, um, uh, there's been talk of Zidane leaving Real Madrid. Let's talk of Pep Guardiola leaving Man City next summer. If either of those were available next summer, um, and they both could be, I think Juventus would want one of them. And of course, Zidane would be probably their first choice because of his historical ties to Juventus and his, you know, he's been hugely successful at Madrid, won everything. Mm-hmm. And I think they would, if he were available, he would they would, they would go for him. But they would also go. Vet Guardiola, if he were available, yeah, of course. Um, so, I don't think Perlo will be unless he, unless he like wins the Champions League, which I don't think he mm. will, mm. Um, because that's what Juventus want right now. Yeah, I don't think Perlo will be there next. Will be there next. No. next season. He'll just no. be, he won't be kind of sat unceremoniously. He'll just be quietly moved upstairs. You know, yeah, uh, football, yeah. which is what he was. Can have a number. Can I, can I have a number two upstairs, James, if uh, if he so desires. But when we go back onto the, um, when we go back onto the other teams uh, like Napoli, 
for example. They're also doing very well. Uh, second in the second in uh, Serie A with a uh, you know two one victory uh, today against Benevento. Benevento. Uh, God, that's terrible pronunciation. But again, we talked about them before uh, doing possibly quite well. And just to go through uh, some other results in Europe, really. I mean, uh, Bayern five, Eintracht Frankfurt uh, nil. Uh, hat trick for Lewandowski, Leroy Sane with a really good goal as well. And Jamal Musiala, hope I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, young player at Bayern Munich coming on late on and getting on in on the act. Uh, but RB Leipzig still top of Bundesliga, 2 1 win over Hertha Berlin. <laughs> they had 68% possession, 26 shots, and created 23 chances in that game. So uh, that is quite no, crazy. Good job there. He's doing, a, he's doing a great job. Uh, Upper Mikado and Marcel Sabaitzer with the two goals. They also play without Alexander Soloff up front, who had a brief stint at um, Crystal Palace, and then he was off to Trabs on Sport. So, yeah, interesting. Again, Nangelsman is a genius. Uh, also, Dortmund 3, Schalke 0. Akanji, Haaland, Hummels. Uh, Dortmund going from a back three to a back four so they could accommodate Sancho, Brandt, Reina and Haaland uh, whilst having Royce, Witzel, Bellingham and Thorgan Hazard on the bench. So there's got attacking riches there. And just to finish, I suppose, uh, in League 1, PSG won 4-0 against Dijon. Uh, and Moise Keane scored twice. Uh, Moise Keane scored twice and, and Mbappe scored twice. Uh, and Neymar got uh, the man of the match. Um, so again... The, the the usual suspects turned up and doing a good job and Moise Keane maybe restoring a bit of his reputation there but we had to really speed through that because we just got to the end of those 15 thank you for listening if you have been listening on iTunes, Spotify, Buzzsprout or whatever platform we're on that I've forgotten but they're usually the three ones that, that pop up yeah I mean again when it comes to the foreign football we do usually get carried away a bit by talking about two teams and then suddenly there's a a whole list of other things that haven't been mentioned. Uh, so I did try to whiz through that as quickly as possible. Uh, and there are a few things in there of note that hopefully get you wanting to hop on Twitter or Google and, and delve into it a bit more yourself. But yeah, no, that's, uh, that's a good episode. Lots of variation there. And uh, we'll be back next week with hopefully some more interactive sections like our London 11 this week, as well as uh, talking about what else is going on in the world of football and the world of European football and uh, the Premier League, of course. So from me and James, it's a goodbye. And we'll see you next week. Yeah, see you next week, everybody.